Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hello, and welcome to the program. I know I say it almost every episode that this guest and this conversation is one of my favorites. But here I am saying it again about this episode and the next, which is a a two-part conversation with author, teacher, and theologian Brad Jursak, who is based in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Through his books and seminars and teaching around the world, Brad shares the good news that God is love perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. And his books include, one of which we'll go deeply into today, A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel, and Can You Hear Me? Tuning in to the God Who Speaks. Out of a deep academic and intellectual knowledge, as well as over two decades as a pastor, where he engaged with deeply broken people, Brad offers this fresh vision uh, of God and the gospel. He also serves as an ordained reader and monastery preacher at All Saints of North America Monastery. He holds a Master of Divinity from Acts Seminary at Trinity Western University, an MA in Biblical Studies from Briarcrest Biblical Seminary, and a PhD in Theology from Bangor University in Wales. To learn more about Brad, to watch videos, to download messages, and learn more about his 12 different books, you can visit bradjersak.com. That's Brad, J-E-R-S-A-K.com. So let's jump in to part one of my conversation with Brad Jersak. Brad, thank you so much for talking with me today all the way from Canada. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. I have read your books, uh, or I I found out earlier that you've actually written uh, 12 or more books, but I've read several of your books, including A More Christ-Like God, which I really want to dive into today. But to start out, you have a divinity degree, uh, you have a, a master's degree in biblical studies, and you've got a Ph.D., in patristic theology. Can you share what patristic theology is? 
patristic theology, patristic refers to the early church fathers. Actually, my, my PhD in theology was on more to do with the political theology of a guy named George Grant and a mystic named Simone Weil. But at, I did postdoctoral uh, research scholarship on, on this patristic theology. And so the idea behind that was uh, in the early church, you know, these are the people who gave us the New Testament. They gathered the New Testament. They determined what should be in our canon, right? And as such, they also uh, had an understanding of of Greek and and, and of the apostles and, and the apostles' disciples who had passed the gospel to them. And so they were trying to answer some pretty important questions in those early centuries, specifically, what is the, who is God? And out of that, we get our doctrine of the Trinity. And then who is Jesus Christ? And out of that, we get this idea of that Christ is fully God and fully man. Those two questions were enormously important to the early church because they wanted to get it right. And, and, and they didn't just you know, see it right away. It took a lot of time and prayer and councils and so on uh, in order to sort of say, what is it we believe about God, about Jesus Christ, and about uh, how Christ has, has saved us? And so I wanted to really nail some of that down because my specific area was this idea that when Christ emptied himself, and we have a word for that, it's kenosis from Philippians 2, when he emptied himself, it was not that he was ceasing to be God at all. Then what we are seeing in, in Christ emptying himself is he's actually showing us the kind of God we have, a self-giving uh, lover, really. And um, so that was my area of study in patristic. So patristic is just the f- church fathers and mothers of, of those first centuries who, who give us all this kind of foundational theology. So it sounds like, based on your study of that, that, the, that those early church fathers, and I know that at least later there were some church mothers as well, but that um, they were asking big questions. And it seems like today the church, at least in the West, gets bogged down in the minutiae questions. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would also say that because of what God's been revealing, I believe, to the church at large in the last couple decades, especially about the Father heart of God, for example, it's causing us to go back to the big questions and just double check. But you're exactly right. Sometimes we we, we get caught in this minutia, as you called it, and, and it's uh, we can't see the forest for the trees. And when in fact we maybe should be asking again, um, who is God? What is God like? And especially examining our assumptions about that. And uh, Jesus is our sponsor in that quest. And as I've uh, read your writings and a handful of other people, it really does seem like in that double checking that it's not that something new is emerging, but it's a richer, more complete picture of the God revealed in Jesus. Yeah, I really believe that. And so, for example, some of my friends, maybe when when I'm beginning to question our assumptions about, let's say, is God retributive or is he restorative? Uh, They might think I'm going out on the limb, but what I'm saying is, uh, no, there is nothing novel about an all-merciful God. Uh, This is the ancient way. And so... Right when they think I might go off the end of a limb, what I'm in fact doing is digging down into the very roots of of the apostolic uh, Christian doctrine. And so 
I'm personally a conservative in the sense of I want to conserve the faith once delivered to the saints. But sometimes in, in reminding folks what the early church taught on this, you know, I don't sound enough like a Protestant. <laughs> and so they're wondering, you know, where, where are you going with this? Are you a progressive? Are you a liberal? Are you a heretic? And I'm like, no, no, this is this is Irenaeus, who was the grand disciple of John the Apostle. It's Gregory of Nyssa, who's the final author of the Nicene Creed. It's Athanasius, who gave us the doctrine of the Incarnation. These guys have a vision of God that's so beautiful and Christ-like that I think that's where we should go check, rather than just making up something that's more palatable to us. And so for anybody listening right now who's going, I think I might tune out on this podcast because I'm not into scholarly theology. One of the very reasons why I've been drawn to your writing is that uh, you are a, a trained theologian and you know have lived and breathed in the academic world and have written 12 books. But the books that I've read are incredibly pastoral and incredibly applicable to daily life. So I want to transition and talk a little bit about uh, your book, the one that I have dog-eared and marked up, A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel. And by the way, Eugene Peterson, who's no slouch, it's on the front of the book, uh, gave an endorsement that said, atonement theology like nothing I've come across. Magnificent. And that's not hyperbole. This book is extraordinary just in terms of really reading it. And it affected my heart as much as my mind. So can we talk about that? Yes, for sure. The title implies a more Christ-like image of God that you've encountered images of God that are not very Christ-like. That's exactly right. Yeah, and and you're right. This comes out of pastoral concerns. So before I went off for like the PhD studies and all of that, uh, I was a pastor for 20 years. And in the context of being a pastor, uh, one of my primary uh, focuses was inner healing work on extremely damaged people. And what we discovered as we're working with regular Christians too, but those, let's say, who'd gone through severe childhood trauma, molestation, and all of that kind of stuff, that the Father heart of God uh, would be revealed to them by Jesus uh, in the context of listening prayer. And it would expose these toxic images of God that were sabotaging their lives. So, for example, some of them would have an image of God that was very harsh and punitive and scary and judgmental and waiting to just destroy them kind of thing. And really the fundamentalist God in some ways. Others, it was almost the opposite where God was the deadbeat dad or the absentee landlord. He's the, he's the one who left, who wasn't there for them when he needed, you know, when they needed him the most. And, and sort of very distant, absent, silent, and even like... Uh, negligent as a parent. And then maybe a third broad category that I saw um, would have been more like the genie in the lantern or, you you know, the kind of God that if you just pray right, you'll get what you want. And be, you know, that can sound great because you can manage God and control him if you could just get the the correct, um, you, you know, his ATM code or if you rub the genie's bottle right or if you do the right incantation. And we call that intercession, of course. But it's very disillusioning when he won't do what you ask. And so we had people that with serious disillusionment. And all of these kind of images of God, like I said, were sabotaging their lives. And what we, But what the Bible says, what Paul says in, in Colossians is Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And to see Jesus is to see the nature of God and and especially 
Christ crucified. This is the irony. When you look at Christ on the cross, suffering what we suffered, you're into now the clearest picture of who God is. Well, this would have like incredibly dramatic effects on, on people who encountered that living God in the context of their pain and their memories and their traumas. And so any theology we're doing today, it's I think good theology is just descriptive of what we see God doing in, in the worshiping church, the healing church, and, and so on. Yeah, and there's beautiful implications for people like myself that have had a, a, a background, you know, that's profoundly broken with abuse and addiction and whatnot. But also, this perspective really gives hope to the fact that the whole world is broken in that kind of way. And, and the real hope is not just for heaven, but for the reality of this God revealed in Jesus uh, to be available to us now. Yes, yes, exactly. So one of the ideas that is in a more Christ-like God is you allude to the fact that you know many people regularly talk about how Jesus is what God looks like. We see that, for example, in Colossians, that he's a visible image of the invisible God, and in Hebrews, that he's the exact representation. But you point out that not just is Jesus like God, but God is like Jesus. That's a big reversal. I do get in trouble sometimes for the title because it's, it's like God's not just like Jesus. He, Jesus is God the Son. It's like, yes, exactly. Then our image of God should look exactly like Jesus Christ because he alone is the perfect revelation of the Father. And so, you know, even in John one eighteen, it says, you know, no one's seen God at any time. And, and John knew that Moses and Abraham and Isaiah, they had visions of God. And yet he still says, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. So when John refers to Jesus as the word of God, he's saying Jesus is what God has to say about himself. So anywhere that my conception or my notion of God differs from the Abba Jesus revealed not only in his words, but in his life and on the cross and his resurrection, then I need to do some quality control using the Gospels. What a rich, unbelievable phrase. Uh, I'm taking notes here, and you'll maybe have to correct me, but Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Yeah, and I need to credit Brian Zond with that, Z-A-H-N-D. I think he's one of the better preachers in America, and that, that I'm ripping directly off of him. He's a, he's a dear friend who teaches and, and writes on these same themes. And, and so he says, he makes this statement, God is like Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. God has always been exactly like Jesus. We didn't always know that, but now we do. Wow. And now we do because Christ came and, and revealed the very nature of God as, and this is mine, uh, as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That's who God is, and that's what's revealed in the life and teachings, most of all on the cross. Uh, and that that is so compelling, the idea that Jesus is what God has to say about himself and everything you just quoted from Brian it makes me think that the people that are not followers of Christ, people that don't profess any faith, that when they hear this, why wouldn't they want to be a part of that, right? Because even atheists and Buddhists are, are drawn to the actual you know, life of Christ. Yeah, and the, the way I say it, I'm getting some traction when I talk to my friends who, um, you know, they've not yet had a revelation of Christ themselves. But I, I will say it this way. 
if there is a God, and I'm not afraid to say if because it's a faith statement, I can't prove it in a lab or a courtroom. If there is a God, that God is love. If you want to know what love looks like, if you want to give that love content so that it's not just sort of like I love ice cream love or Miley Cyrus songs love or, you know, just as we need to load the right things into the word God, we need to load the right things into the word love. If you want to see what love looks like, then you look at Jesus, how he treated people, how he forgave people, and how he responded even to his enemies. And and when I start saying that, that, so the logic is, if there's a God, God is love. If you want to see love, you look at Jesus. That makes sense to people. Sadly, we should also be able to say, and if you want to look, let, see what love looks like, look at the church. That doesn't get traction these days very well, I'm afraid. Yeah, I bet. Another one-liner from your book is this question that I've, I've certainly heard asked by people in indirect ways, but I don't think anybody has come out and said it this clearly. Why does Jesus seem so loving and God so mean? Talk about that as a pastor. Yeah, well, so first of all, um, you know, the kind of people that would ask that, where are they getting the idea that God is mean? Uh, and it can come from a few places. They can get the idea that God is mean from images of God as mean through the preaching or through their Christian friends or their church experience. So in other words, this immediate experience of meanness in their faith community that or Perhaps they're not in a faith community, but they're looking at it from the outside and saying, wow, how is it? Why are Christians must be mean because God is mean. Uh, another place they can pick this up, the idea that God is mean, is reading reading the parts of the Bible where God appears very destructive and violent and vengeful and even, you know, and to read those without reference to how Christ came to show us the true nature of God as as all-merciful, unfailing love. You know, so they would have this, part of the problem is it's not just Christians reading the Bible anymore, it's like Bill Maher is reading the Bible, so, or Richard Dawkins is reading the Bible, and they use the these texts as ammo, and I would say, fair enough, then how do we read them? Well, whatever we do, we read them as Christians who go there only with... Uh, you know, Jesus as a rabbi, and it's him who said, in the Bible, of all places, you know, uh, you heard it said, but I tell you. And that for us, uh, Jesus is to have the last word on these things. So help me as a pastor, and, and I have to confess, I, I could easily say, well, help our listeners understand, but, th- you know, I, I'm wrestling through this because none of us have all the answers or the clarity that we really long for. But so let's let's think about the story in the Old Testament where the Israelites are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and, you know, God says, and I can't remember the reference, but, but a guy is struck dead because he touches it and he's told not to. And that seems like this, you know, this holiness of God that was almost Zeus-like, where he's struck from the heavens, and then people go, oh, God is, is that holy, and therefore a sinful person cannot coexist with the holiness of God. So that opens up a whole bunch of things. But how do we look at that story through this Jesus lens? How, what does that practically look like for you? That's very good. So, like, th- through the Jesus lens is important. And it's not just that we're taking Jesus as a lens and putting it over the story. We need to understand that even in the context of 
of the story there's you know Christ is already there we don't we're not just loading in Jesus after the fact somehow right right because uh-huh. Jesus is like is what God's like yeah and in fact I think it's fair to start with Jesus and end with Jesus and so when I start with Jesus again I see him interpreting the Old Testament in ways that are different than what the narrator is assuming or what the reader is assuming so for example John 10.10, Jesus makes a real little hermeneutic for us there, uh, which I mean, an interpretive principle, where he says, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. But I have come that you would bring life. So when you see destruction and death, who's the author of that? When you see life-giving and restoration, who's the author of that? So Jesus is doing something there that's very important in terms of how we read the Old Testament. Elsewhere, he gets more explicit. Don't worry, I'll still come back to the ark. But uh, an example would be where Elijah calls down fire from heaven to kill a bunch of soldiers. So they, they're going to arrest him. And then they send more soldiers. So he calls fire down from heaven and kills them again. The third time, they, the soldiers come and the commander says, please don't kill the messenger. We just need to take you to the king. And when Jesus and his disciples are doing evangelism in Palestine, well, Samaria, actually, at the time, I think, some of the cities aren't receiving Jesus' message. So James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, we should call fire down from heaven. I mean, and that's biblical, right? (laughs) And Jesus turns to them. He rebukes them. And they refer specifically to the Elijah story in some manuscripts like Elijah did. Let's do what Elijah did. And, and by we, he means you. You should call down fire from heaven. Um, and, and he rebukes him. He says, you don't know what spirit you are of. Mm. And, and he talks about his, you know, he's come to save. Well, what's that saying? It says that the narrator of the Elijah story, when he says the fire comes from heaven, assumes that it's heavenly fire coming from God. Wow. John and James are reading that. They're good biblicists. They want to apply their Bible. And they know that Jesus is a messenger from God, so just like Elijah. So he should be able to call down fire from heaven. And when Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of, why? Well, I, I don't know what he's implying, but he's certainly saying he's reading that story as destruction that's not from his Abba. Wow. Okay. That tells me that the narrators of the Old Testament, yes, the Holy Spirit's infallible, but the narrators of the Old Testament are, are in a way, similar to the characters of the Old Testament, very bound by their own assumptions, their perceptions, and they're telling God, as Pete N says, God let his children tell the story. Mm-hmm. God's in the story, but when his children tell the story, they're telling it as people who it's like, well, look at this. Who else is responsible? This has to be God, right? And and Jesus is not so sure about that. <laughs> now we go to the the story of the ark. The guy falls down dead. I don't remember offhand if it actually says God struck him down, but it certainly it makes sense to assume that it's God if he touches the ark and that's what kills him. But even you know. David turns around and writes Psalm 103, and he says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, mm. abounding in loving kindness. It's like, so even, and he hasn't treated us as our sins deserved. So you're like, well, so even David's beginning to faithfully question 
what's going on here, but it's in Christ that we see, no, the Old Testament, we thought God was the destroyer. Jesus comes along and says, no, uh, the enemy's the destroyer, sin is the destroyer, and even holiness uh, gets redefined. So in, in the Old Testament, it seems like holiness is this radioactive power that will kill you and infect you and consume you. Jesus comes along and he shows us that holiness in its perfection is compassion and indiscriminate grace. And I don't know what to do with all of that and how it all fits. I just know Jesus gets the last word. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com 